Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Hi everyone. In this episode, I interview a couple who have had a life-altering experience a little over two years ago when they found out that their unborn child had a serious medical condition. I actually found out about their story on social media and reached out to them. I really wanted to hear more about their story, about their experience with regards to communication between the healthcare professionals that cared for their son and themselves as worried and concerned parents, but also about their thoughts on communication between one healthcare professional and another, as well as their communication as a couple, their communication with their family members, their friends, and, and everything that involved communication with this entire ordeal. I think that As a speech and language pathologist working in the healthcare system, and as other professionals who work in the healthcare system, we often forget about the emotional side of things and everything that families go through. We forget about the tears, the concerns, even the turmoil experienced by them. So, like I said, I reached out to them again on social media, and they graciously accepted to share their story. I was a complete stranger, and they welcomed me into their home. And to be honest, the only night that worked between their busy family and work life schedule and my own crazy schedule was a Friday evening. So there I was, pretty late on a Friday evening. I decided to bring over some wine and just have a nice casual talk with them. So you might hear the clinging of the glasses, the pouring of some wine. It was a very comfortable, relaxed atmosphere and they were able to just share their story with me and now I'm able to share it with you. It was a lovely evening, and I really hope that their story will be as inspiring to you as much as it was to me. So take a listen to this wonderful story that turned out very positively, um, and and maybe reflect on your own uh, experiences with, with communication with the healthcare system. If you are a healthcare professional, I hope that this episode will shed a bit of light on what families experience when something doesn't go quite as planned. Okay, so here we are on a Friday night. Can't think of anything else I'd want to do on a Friday night. Uh, I'm sitting with um, a very pleasant couple, Chris and Leslie Cacciotti, who have welcomed me into their home to talk a little bit about their journey um, over the past couple of years with their son. So I think I'll let them introduce their story because they will tell it way better than I. Uh, So hi to both of you, first of all. Hey, Chantel. (laughs) Hey. Thanks for having us. (laughs) No problem. Now maybe tell us a little bit about your story with your son, Everett, and um, and then I'll, I'll jump in and see, explain to the listeners how this ties into the podcast of communication. Okay, so um, Everett was diagnosed with complex congenital heart disease uh, when I was 30 weeks pregnant. So it was um, an unexpected diagnosis. It was found in a non-routine ultrasound for something completely um, unrelated. Um, and non-threatening. Yeah, we, we went into this ultrasound thinking they were just checking on something um, kind of incon- inconsequential. And uh, we got a call the next day to say that there were some findings on the ultrasound that were quite concerning and that we needed to go down for an urgent, call to, urgent consult to Mount Sinai. They couldn't really tell us much more. So um, that was kind of maybe one of the first encounters we had with the healthcare system that was kind of tough for, for us. You especially, because you got the call. Yeah, so I got the call at work and... Um, 
my, we had a midwife at the time, and she was great, but she just really didn't have a ton of experience with mm-hmm. what she could see on the ultrasound and couldn't really answer a lot of questions. So I remember asking her, okay, what does urgent mean? Does urgent mean right, like, this instant? Does urgent mean Monday? Does it, it was Friday. It was a Friday before, before the, the long, Canada, yeah, Canada Day long weekend. Okay. And she said, well, I'm not really sure, and I'll call you back, is what she said. <laughs> okay, so all I know is something's really wrong with the baby, I'm at work, and I'm going to call limbo. you back, and I'm supposed to be urgently seen at Mount Sinai. So Calls home, Chris. Yeah, I called Chris. We, we went home, and basically I remember pacing around the... The, uh, the living room. I left my chair swirling, she called, and said, Chris, there's something wrong with Everett. What, what with the baby? We didn't know. Yeah, yeah, we didn't know. <laughs> there's something wrong with the baby. And it was, I just heard it in her voice. I got up, chair swirling, ran out the door of the office, and... That was the last time I oh, saw I the bet. office in three yeah. months. And this was your first child, no, right? No, it was the second. Oh, okay. right, right. Like, Sorry, our daughter second, life yeah. was very, True. everything was very uncomplicated yeah. with her. Um, so anyways, I remember getting here and I had no idea when she was going to call me back. And I'm very much a like take matters into my own hands kind of person. So I got on the phone and I didn't know who to call. I just like dialed Mount Sinai. <laughs> like I Googled Mount Sinai. <laughs> I knew that's where we were supposed to be going. And I got passed around to all these different departments. I didn't even know that, that I was supposed to be talking to like a fetal, mm-hmm. um, like depart- Like I had no idea even what department I'd be calling. I just said, I have an ultrasound that says I need an urgent consult and no one's getting back to me and I need to know what that means. And they finally put me through to somebody who basically said, it's, it's Friday the long weekend. I don't know who you can talk to, but if it says urgent, you could always come down to the emergency like room and, uh, be- and see if somebody could see you. Wow. So, <laughs> so we got a call back from my midwife and she said, okay, we talked with like an OB here. They said, you know, not worth seeing an OB here if they've already said urgent consult in Mount Sinai, like go straight there kind of thing. So we got in the car that, that, that afternoon and drove down. With a weekend bag because we thought we were just going down for a, a test, a something, to scope it out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Little did we know that we wouldn't see our home again until the end of October. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. So... Um, we got down there probably around like seven o'clock. Um, we waited till two in the morning to see, um, one of the fellows on call who was delivering a complex set of twins, which is why he took so long to see us. Yeah. That wasn't the fellow though. The first individual we saw was the fellow. That was the actual, um, like doctor who, who came in after. And all they could tell us was they knew something was wrong with the heart. Could have been one of two things. They really weren't sure. They were going to wait until the next morning to consult with sick kids. I'm going into a lot of detail. Like, I don't know if you want to. No, this is great. Absolutely. (laughs) So, um, she's riveted. So they basically admitted us for the night. We were exhausted. We were obviously, you know, worried. Two hour ultrasound. The ultrasound took two hours. We were of course really, really worried, but you know, needed some sleep. So um, the next morning, it was Saturday of the long weekend, and they basically said, we'll see if we can even find anybody at Sick Kids, but it just so happened that their... This is the craziest part. That their head of fetal um, echocardiogram, like that department in cardiology, he was like on his last day before he was going to start this sabbatical. I think he was actually on sabbatical and was yeah. in to pick something up. Yeah, and so he... And like, they were like, you got to get over to Mount Sinai, and he did the, uh, he did the ultrasound, or was an echo no he did an ultrasound yeah himself at mount sinai in street clothes yeah so he knew right away what was what was going on so he brought us into a room and sat us down and through this entire journey we've realized we've seen a lot of people like fellow like other people who are learning have been really a part of this process so i remember it was us it was him and there was two i think like residents or something that were sitting in on the conversation and that seems to be a theme ongoing there's always residents people learning which we're fine with but Mm -hmm. especially in Everest's case because it's so rare and so and so like um rare and what's the word i'm looking for Not intense, but... I think it was just a big learning opportunity. It was a big learning opportunity, right? For anyone in the hospital, it's a rare and significant case that... The, you know, they just wanted people they want to, to use it as a teaching right. tool as well. Yeah, it, it just, makes it's, you feel alone. It's very, yeah, it's very odd to think about now because, like, I think about how like devastating it was to us and how like 
almost intrigued and interested right. they were. You know what I mean? To yes. them, this is an intriguing case. I to us, this think is life altering. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? So it's very, now that I think back, like just remember being like, them, oh, you guys got to see this. You got to see this. You got to right. see this. And us not even knowing or understanding at all the impact or implications of what was going on. Uh-huh. We picked it up quick, though. Yeah, we very quickly learned. Um, so they basically explained to us that Everett had a, a very rare heart condition. And that it's called... Severe. That's the word I was thinking of. Sorry. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, I needed to get that out. So um, it's called Epstein's Anomaly, mm-hmm. and it can really range in severity in that, like, some people can have this this condition and not know about it in their entire lives. Maybe mm-hmm. it'd just be found, like, on a, on a, you know, echo when they're mm-hmm. 60 for something else. Mm-hmm. Um, or in Everett's case, it could be symptomatic in, in utero. Um, so they basically told us that he was pretty much like, uh, his organs were shutting down at that point. Like he okay. was, he did had very little time left. And so we had the option just to let him pass. Mm-hmm. Um, or they said we could try taking this drug. It's called indomethacin, which wasn't approved, like not something that oh, wow. the, like the FDA had mm-hmm. approved, but basically they had learned in kind of recent years that in giving this drug to other pregnant women to slow down um, preterm, preterm labor. labor, that it actually constricts... A side effect. Yeah, side effect of the drug is that it constricts a, 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 duct. a duct in the heart. And of allows, the baby. Yeah, and so it basically, some of the symptoms he was having, it would reduce them. Okay. So the regurgitation into the... Uh, atrium of the heart was slowed down because that pinched duct prevented okay. prevented it from yeah. coming now back. Just for the listeners, so Epstein, so that's E-B-S-T-E-I-N. That's what yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. he was diagnosed with. Okay. Yeah. So it's a malformation of the, the valve on the right side of the heart. Tricuspid okay. valve. Yes, the tricuspid valve on the right side of the heart. Okay. Um, but his pro- like his issue was that I guess sometimes when this, this valve, it can be, can be fixed. Um, but his had been, um, the regurg- like the regurgitation was so bad, it was so malformed that it stretched, stretched out yeah. that side of his heart. And once okay. the muscle stretched out, what they explained to us is it's really hard for it to kind of regenerate after that. Okay. So they knew that he would, would never have use of that side of his heart. Okay. So they said, okay, we can try this drug, try and keep him in and to grow strong enough so that when he's born, he can go into surgery and he'll have to go into surgery uh, as soon as he's born. Um... And so he would then have three open heart surgeries kind of between the ages of the day, like the day he was born would be the first surgery. Like five minutes into life. And then um, around three would be the final surgery. And that would just be to reconfigure kind of the the plumbing of his his heart so that one side of his heart could do the job of both sides. Okay. So he only has the left side pumping. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were game for that. We decided that's what we were going to do. And so we... Spent the next seven weeks um, living in Toronto, and they were really great. They set us up with an apartment that's donated by a family um, oh, wow. for yeah, so families that have you know babies yeah. with with pretty severe significant health issues. Um, so we were living on college and Alex- Alexander. Alexander, yeah, Ale- was it church in Alexander? Alexander. Yes, yeah, in Toronto. And this little apartment, we brought our daughter down with us and uh, going for kind of echoes every every few days. And they were checking kind of the doses and seeing how things were, were going. And they actually said that I think they'd only had a few cases where they'd had to use this drug. And his was the best response they'd seen. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. so they were really happy. Yeah. Um, but the one thing is they knew he was going to be super high risk. So um, he couldn't be born. Most babies uh, with health issues are born at Mount Sinai. And there's a tunnel that connects. Mount Sinai to sick kids underneath University Avenue. So baby's born, gets stabilized um, over at Mount Sinai, and then gets wheeled over to sick kids. Okay. But with Everett's case, they knew that that would be maybe too much time. So they had set up, they wanted him born at sick kids, which is like we learned was a very big deal. Oh. Um, <laughs> just to get everybody from Mount Sinai over okay. to a different hospital completely different you know teams of like yeah. 12 people from both yeah. hospitals what, like, what constantly team communicating eh? yeah, like the two teams yeah them just trying to coordinate going getting over there and we had to meet with all these different people and and then the audible on the field the day before he was scheduled to go into surgery to extend it a week 
Oh, yes. Yes, he was doing well enough that we were supposed to go in, and then they basically said, no, we want to keep him in for another week. So the day before the surgery, so the 12 doctors, nurses, anesthesiologists, mm-hmm. like all these, one person from SickKids, one person from Sinai on both teams, like honestly, there were like 20 people on this team. Everything's ready to go. Legitimately, game day is tomorrow, and we had a we had an echo at Sick Kids, and they were like, "We think it's good. Like he's, I think we're he's stable enough okay. that he can that we want to let it go another week." At this point, thirty six, but okay. they want to keep to thirty seven. No, thirty five, oh, and then we kept it to thirty six. Thirty six, right? Yeah, thirty five, thirty six. So on the day before game day, they make the decision to put it off another week because they're like we his lungs need the week right. we think he can do it so let's go for it and then re and then reconfigure the whole like there were people on vacation like they had to like reschedule the whole thing yeah i mean in retrospect it's definitely i think uh, uh super good call yes very good call especially with how bad his lungs were yeah um, so yeah, it's like on the actual, on his day of birth, um, <laughs> we, we got wheeled into an OR at Sick Kids and, uh, had a C-section there. He basically, um, they were able to show us him for maybe one know, second. Yeah. One second. Oh and then it was instantly off over to the team to get him intubated and over to the next OR where the surgeon, like, the team of like, was waiting and ready for him. And then I think a really difficult part, we had already planned out what was going to happen. I had to go back to Mount Sinai. To recover. So to recover. And so Chris went and he waited for news from the surgeon on how the surgery would go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one Hold on. Special shout out to Curtis Voice and one of my best friends in the whole world who waited with me the whole time until I got the news. And Dave Gruel, who was also there uh, for support during the day. Yeah. So... Um, Hold on. One more thing. They, Kurt especially, because he stayed there till I got the news. He, he put himself in a crazy situation. Like, he, I don't think I've ever even articulated this to you, babe. He put himself in a situation to support me and support Leslie that he could have been told like totally devastating news. He could have been there the moment I found out that our son. Yeah didn't make it so he was willing to make that sacrifice to be there to be there for me mm-hmm. right yeah and like, you had that support system yeah and Leslie the c-section went well for you yeah okay. c-section That's was good. fine yeah yeah c-section was fine and my parents were kind of waiting there to yeah. to give me the support which was nice and then uh, surgery went well uh, enough, so the actual heart surgery itself went really well, but his lungs weren't as developed as they okay. they were hoping for because his heart was so big mm-hmm. and expanded in in like in when he was the in my chest tummy. cavity. Um, mm-hmm. His lung, that left lung, didn't okay. uh, develop very well, so he had to put on be put on a pretty the most serious type of uh, life support called ECMO, which basically gives his lungs and heart the time to rest okay. and does the work of the lungs and heart for him. Okay. So the first time Chris went in and had already been like settled in the ICU with him, learned everybody's names because that's Chris's style, found mm-hmm. out everything there is to know about all these machines and everything. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, they finally let me come over um, to see him and he was basically in this little hospital bed, so small, six pounds, and just surrounded by all these different machines. It was on the dialysis, ECMO, they had like... Oxygen. Mm-hmm. Well, just everything was around right. him, yeah. You could hardly... Yes, yes. But at that point, Chris was already like the expert in telling me and explaining to me mm-hmm. what everything was, do- like, you know, what everything was and why it was there and, and... Had his bravery beads hanging. Yes, Chris already had his bravery beads started, and so... So that was nice, and I mean that was the beginning of of our journey, mm-hmm. <laughs> or I guess a different the next yeah. the next step of our journey. It already definitely began at that point. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So yeah. So from there, so he is now in ICU. How long is he on this life support for? Uh, six days. Okay. Yeah. But they've kind five of or told six us days. That, like. You know, which baby, is insane for him to get yeah, off it that baby, fast. You know, okay. if you're looking at a week, you, there's not much hope at that point. Sometimes two weeks, but like really, they want to try and get them off as soon as possible. Okay. And it wasn't looking very good for the first couple of days, but we were just being super hopeful and 
I really think they were really trying to prep us for this mm-hmm. might not go, you know, he might not do so well. Mm-hmm. I remember the, the fellow coming in and saying to me, you know, he's the sickest baby on the unit. You just need to understand that. And, um, but it was interesting because every day, like you just learn so much, like the, it's just a completely different world, but every day they have these rounds, right? That come in and there's, there's a kind of a doctor on for a few days in a row and then you get a new doctor. And I remember kind of Googling these doctors as they're coming in just to like know who they were, what mm-hmm. their specialties were. And like, you realize just how intense, it, like, yes, these like, doctors were trained at like Harvard and some of the best schools in the world. And yeah. you're just like, okay, at least my son's in the best possible hands right. and those are the people making the decisions and shout out to sick kids for having the best doctors and nurses yeah. Yeah. so we can at least just in the world um that they are making the decisions for him and at that point we were very new to the everything and it was all very overwhelming Absolutely. so it was just like blind faith that you were doing what's right for my child and mm-hmm. i'm just going to trust you mm-hmm. and they were great about communicating in every single way like to make making sure that we understood what was going on and and were comfortable with the information that we were getting. Okay. Yeah, I always felt like it, that they would take the time, the doctors would take the time to stay back even after the rounds were done to answer questions. Yeah, or, that was huge. Or take the time to explain things to us. So it's a very uh, like family-centered mm-hmm. type of care, um, uh, which was really, really, really good for sure. Yeah, no, that's very important, absolutely. Sometimes families feel or patients, whatever feel like they're the last ones to really find yes. out what's happening yes in terms for of sure. their care for sure so. and I think like and then it's hard because we then are, are having to relay all this super technical information to friends and family <laughs> who are all asking like hey what's going on what's going on so he has half a lung he's got like does he have a full lung does he have this what's yeah. going on what's he going to be like so we're like trying to have a really good understanding so that we can then go back to our family and say hey this is what's going on but in kind of a Cole's notesy way yeah. because yeah. they're not going to get all the jargon right so we have to we have to phrase it in ways like yeah, like sure. plumbing like repiping yeah. and yeah. hardwiring and yeah so yeah he was off of ECMO after I think five days off dialysis I can't remember three three days yeah so he started doing really well so there was the first couple days where he was it was looking not so great and then he started just doing really really well full steam ahead like he was shedding these machines like crazy and everyone was like what is going on with this kid Yes, the people in IC were very... They called him the miracle baby. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yes, for sure. Now, if I back up a little bit, when the fellow says to you, he's the sickest baby on the unit, what, what is going through your mind at that point? I think very different things for us because I remember we talked. About I just after. ghosted that comment. Like it didn't make it. It didn't. It didn't <laughs> exist to me. Yeah. You just didn't. Um, I just ghosted it. Honestly. I really felt that she was telling me <laughs> mm-hmm. you need to prepare yeah. for for the worst case scenario here. Like I'm not gonna, just going to say this to a family right. for the sake of saying it. Like this is something that mm-hmm. you know. I I really took that as okay. Things aren't looking great. Mm-hmm. Whereas Chris was very much like the most optimistic. Blindly, for me. fiercely, <laughs> blindly optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. So we are very two different. Well, well, and then to hear but that's important. That he's a miracle baby, right? Yes, to go from yes. sickest baby to miracle yes. baby is right. Yeah, a huge change in a few days for sure. Now, okay, so we've talked about um, so so he has a surgery. Um, the lung is is not as developed as they thought. So what then after he's off the echo after about yeah. six days? What's yeah. the next step? Um, so then it was just basically working on getting, uh, meds down yeah, and off. oxygen as off. Yeah. So there was basically, a and it was playing the balance. It was playing the balance, right? Sometimes you get off the meds, then he would need a little more oxygen. Then you try and get off the little oxygen down, a little med support. And then it's kind of trying to get both of those down while playing that balancing game. Mm-hmm. So essentially he had to be, um, off of certain types of medication before he could get moved up to like the unit. So when we were in ICU, they always talked about 4D. 4D. When you get up to 4D, it was like this, that's like, a long term work. Yeah, like what's well, 4D? 4D. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, 4D. Have you? We have a bed in there. We can stay in there. I'm scared of 4D. Yeah. What's it going to be like? We were very dependent because an ICU has a one-on-one nurse. Yes. So 24 hours a day, one-on-one. We know that he's yeah. okay. So if we can, you know, step away for a couple minutes, where's 4D? Was much more independent. They're trying to get you prepared to go home. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so he had to basically be off certain medication as oxygen um, had to be like at a certain level like he had he couldn't be dependent on such intense machines so he did that by Labor Day so he was born he was in a month he was out within a month within a month so he was up on the unit within a month okay yeah 
And so. We'll and then we spent how many days in the transition room? Like, um, not even a day? I think a couple two? days, yeah, before he got his own private room. And so, once he's on 4D, mm-hmm. how many patients per nurse would you say? Three. Three? Oh, okay. Two to three, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Depending on, yeah, but it's like max three, sometimes two, depending on what the shift was. Okay. So that's so it's very then parent mm-hmm. kind of parent centered where they're empowering us to kind of start taking the lead um, to get us ready to mm-hmm. take on the the world outside. Yeah. So they start showing you how to administer medication, mm-hmm. and he was on how to read symptoms and yeah, yeah, basically just to prepare you for when you're going home. Feeding him at that point mm-hmm. as Bacus is feeding because he couldn't eat for the first little bit. Yeah, they were really trying to work on, on feeding. Mm-hmm. So at this point, he's not tube-fed anymore, or he was? Uh, we tried to do some breastfeeding. Yeah. Uh, didn't really work. We tried a bit of bottle feeding. He did do some bottle feeding for a little while, but um, one of the kind of like side effects or complications of congenital heart disease is that the gut and the stomach doesn't get as much o- as much oxygen, mm-hmm. right? His oxygen levels are much lower than mm-hmm. yours and not, like ours. Like at that point, it was like a 50 what? O- Lower. Oxygen. No, he wasn't at 15. Oh, no, he was like 70. 75, yeah, yeah, 75 to 85. And so the thing that suffers the most is their gut. So they often have a lot of feeding problems, um, which I mean, you probably mm-hmm. maybe have seen that through CTC. Yeah. Um, so he, he was actually doing really well orally feeding, and then it just started to go downhill, and he was doing lots of vomiting and couldn't tolerate, and started having lots of stomach issues. They were worried about a pretty pretty intense complication. He had to go... There were some really rough times in there where um, he had a pretty serious scare with with something called uh, necrotizing enterocolitis. I think that's what it's called. Don't quote me on that. It's been a couple years. Um, Neck, a.k.a. neck. Yeah, so he had to basically go uh, with no food. Um, He had to be fed through IV... And that made a very angry baby. Oh, and uh, was also receiving three antibiotic meds uh, through IV at that point as well. And he was doing this for like seven day stretches. So that was really tough, that period of time. Um, but once that all got settled, we were kind of in October and they were comfortable enough that he was being orally fed, um, that we were finally able to go home. But it didn't last very long. Um, because he started having, uh, we got home for oxygen dips. Yeah. We got home for about three, four days. Got home on a Wednesday, left on a Saturday. Actually, we should probably back this up because I think there's some important pieces about communication, uh, before we discharged from the hospital. Mm -hmm. So, um, one thing that was a bit overwhelming, Mm -hmm. obviously being discharged from the hospital is going to have a a baby who's, I think like he was on maybe seven different meds at that time that were like being taken three or four times throughout the day. So basically you sit down with the pharmacist. One being an injection. Yeah. An injection twice a day. Um, you sit down with the pharmacist, they create a schedule for you and basically they've, they've mapped out what your life is going to look like. They make you practice. (laughs) We had to pass a test. Oh, sorry. With the pharmacist, uh, how to administer the anoxaparin. Yeah, his blood thinner. Okay. Um, you sit down with, I guess at that point he wasn't on oxygen, so we hadn't sat down with him yet. They basically, they give you a machine. So yeah, you, he was. No, he wasn't on oxygen. Oh, no, we had, yeah, but, yeah, he was on oxygen, babe. No, he wasn't on oxygen initially when he came oh, home. Oh, when he came home, yes, yeah, yeah, you're right. So, um, I don't know how you keep track of all this. I know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and they basically said, okay, we made referrals here, we made referrals here, we made referrals here. Didn't really tell us who they were, what they did, or maybe they did, but at that point, you're just, your mind is... It's just so jacked on getting out of there. It's, like, surreal at that point. Um, but one thing they did do that was great was they gave us a binder, and the binder was already pre-organized. It had all his diagnoses in it. They put a section for all his discharge summaries. Um, they gave us a bunch of pamphlets on, you know, what to look for, congestive heart failure, all these types of different things, like reading to do at home, and basically said, if anything happens, bring this binder to Emerge. And yeah, oh, like super tool for sure. Especially yeah. at that point where we had learned a ton, but there was just so much, right? Because mm-hmm. we had our own binder. Because we were yeah, keeping yeah. some pretty solid. 
We are keeping some pretty solid notes. Well, and it's been kind of shown that when you're receiving kind of that type of news, you only retain about 20% at first, so you need to hear it many times. And that's why they wanted us Mm -hmm. together a lot of the times, because one person is processing something, it's important to make sure that, like, Mm. two sets of ears are listening to this stuff. Yeah. yeah, so uh, when we did get home, um, we weren't home for very long. It was like, I think, less than a Wednesday week. to Saturday. And uh, we were testing his oxygen levels twice a day. And I just happened to notice one time I was testing him um, in the evening one night, and it was really low. And I kept him kind of hooked up, and it wasn't going up, wasn't going up. It's I was at a Halloween party at Dave's house. Yeah. <laughs> and she called me and said, Everett's oxygen's really low. It's not going, it's not rising. We're going to the hospital. So I left the party. We went to the hospital, saw that it was significantly low, got sick kids involved. Sick kids sent a, a helicopter. No, not a helicopter. So it was No, like, not a helicopter. Yeah. A plane. Yeah. To come scoop him up. So yeah, between his first and second surgeries, he was very unstable. And mm-hmm. we were kind of, we didn't realize, I think at that point, just how fragile he was right Um, that was a little bit of an eye-opener for sure because as soon as we got to the hospital um they were like okay they could know we gave him the binder they looked through everything they said we're going to get in contact with sick kids because that was the instructions we had if anything happens you call you know this Mm -hmm. number and let them know and i think it was within you know an hour that we hadn't even met our pediatrician but she happened to be on call that night oh, nice. okay. and so she was kind of like oh nice to meet you by the way i talked to sick kids really sorry but you guys, are, you guys are going back kind of thing so that was pretty devastating because we thought we were finally home mm-hmm. after all of this we've been through and it's less than a week and you know we hadn't been home we'd been away from our daughter for for a pretty long time at that point uh, Chris had planned on going back to work, already mm-hmm. been back to work at that point, and now it's you're getting on a plane, mm-hmm. who knows when you're coming back again kind of thing. And it was in the middle of the night, so that's happened, I think, two or three times now where Chris, we've put our daughter times. to bed, and then something's oh, happened, here in the and she's woke up, and we're not here, or I'm not here in the morning, right? Right. So only one of us could travel with him, so right. it was me, went in the ambulance. They had, like, a specialized team because he was still so young at that point that comes and picks him up and, and flies with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were admitted at that point at sick kids for another, I'd say, three weeks. They, he came home on oxygen at that point. Okay. So they couldn't really figure out what was going on. His hemoglobin levels, they couldn't get it under control. So they basically said, you know what, he's just going to go home on oxygen so that we're, you know, we're good that he's, we're, we're confident that he's going to stay at that level. So then that was a whole new thing to learn as well. Again on a Wednesday. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Again on a Wednesday. Yeah. And then on the Saturday... Boom, exact same thing. Oxygen levels dip, go to the hospital, sick kids comes and scoops them up, and they go back again. Oh, yeah, we were only home for three days, I think, that time again. Yeah. And uh, at that point, he was having a lot of feeding troubles. He was being fed through an NG at that point and still really not tolerating it. So they basically said, because of his feeding issues, because his oxygen's really, like, not stable... We want to put a G-tube in him. Like, mm-hmm. he's not he's not gaining weight. He's failing to thrive. Right. Um, but you need to stay in hospital because he's on a continuous feed at this point, and they won't let you go home if they're being continuously fed through right. a tube. And this is beginning of December. Yeah. Because we were in Toronto for that construction conference, and you guys went down for a regular appointment. Yeah. And it ended up them being admitted and staying from December to the middle oh, yeah. of February. Okay. So there was a couple of flights back right. and forth oh, there. Right. I'm sorry. There was like a flight yeah. in October, a flight in early November, and then yeah. and follow up at end of November because they wanted <laughs> us there every two weeks. Yeah. And they said, we're going to admit him. He's barely to thrive. And, so yeah. how did, I mean, what is going through your minds when all this is going on? There, there must have been so many people telling you so many different things and you, you have to manage all of this and manage your work and manage your daughter and man, like uh, how, how do you do all that? Looks like keep hitting the mic. Yeah, so I think we were super lucky in the sense that we had a really good support system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both our families were really, like, willing to help in any way possible. So, okay. you know, David. Shout out mom and dad and yeah. Sandra and Patty. <laughs> yeah. Um, they made sure that, you know, we didn't have to worry about things like the house or the dog or, you know, feeding the cats or, right. like, things like that we didn't really have to worry about. Like, if we needed to pee, if we needed to jet, it was, it was like, pick up and go. Oh, that's we'll, yeah, we'll, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then even our daughter, we, they, you know, they worked out between the two of them who would take her. They, mm-hmm. you know, take her for a few days at a time. 
Because we got no time for that, right? Like, they had to manage yeah, that amongst themselves. Call, hey, mom, can yeah. you? And then, you know, But yeah. I'm sure there's lots of people, and you, you meet a lot of different types of families mm-hmm. at the hospital, and there's lots of people who don't have those supports, right. and they have to make it work, and it's definitely an added stress. So that definitely let us just focus on him and... Um, ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, a bit ourselves as well. Um so, I mean, yeah, you think, I think you just go with the flow. I mean, you don't really have an option or a choice no. at that point. You just yeah. do and, you know, it. It reminds me of the saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Like, you, th- that saying took on a whole new meaning. For exactly, for yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. for sure. So many people involved, and like you said, so many residents and fellows and, and yes. all of these specialists. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, definitely can't do anything but give absolute like shout outs to everyone who was both being respectful about our space and keeping our distance but trying to remain supportful at the same time Mm -hmm. and letting us know that they were thinking about them Mm -hmm. thinking about us and that was one of the for me anyway that was one of the most powerful things of this whole process was seeing how Everyone was just, like, putting every ounce of energy they had into, like, thinking about us and, like, the outpouring of support and love. And we, like, people were sending white light and good vibes and asking us to include Everett in prayer circles Mm -hmm. and, like... Yeah, we have a really great friend group as well. And so, like, a lot of our friends actually came down. Came down to visit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and meet Everett in the hospital, and uh, lots of friends we had in Toronto. Which is tough to see. Like, that wasn't easy for them. That wasn't easy for them to do that. Like, Everett, like, Steno, with his two eyes, watched Everett's heart beating through that, through that saran wrap window. Mm. Yes, when he was in ICU, it was pretty intensive, I think, and emotional for people to see. We got used to it really quickly, but it was obviously emotional Mm. for, for lots of people to see, and so it was really... Um, uh, great to see that there were so many people around us who came to see him and mm-hmm. and visit us and give their support. So that was nice. Love you guys. <laughs> so you talked a lot about how great communication was, and you you know you had that binder, and they were always really good about explaining things to you. Mm-hmm. Were there ever instances where you felt like, gosh, like I wish someone would tell us, or, or sure. if you so can you maybe yeah. share some of those? There were some instances. I feel like you, you probably put them out of your, your mind a bit. It's okay. I mean, everybody's... I'm not, I'm not trying to shame anybody. It's just more for, for anybody who's listening out there, who's working with families who are going through moments like these, to kind of keep certain things in mind. So what, what are some examples of moments where you thought, like, I feel like we're out of the loop or... Yeah, so I feel like as a parent, I kind of described that whole feeling of you and I was like this a lot that I just put kind of like my faith in healthcare professionals that they always had his best interest in mind and and they truly do Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of process and process driven Mm -hmm. um decisions that are right with the needles and yeah there's a lot of you know um policies and Mm -hmm. procedures that are that are followed and you learn I think you start to learn that you honestly have to be your child's advocate right. and you have to speak for them and you have to sometimes put your foot down and to me that was like a very much like a, can I even do this am I allowed mm-hmm. to say no am I allowed to say yeah he just fell asleep I don't want his vitals done right now because he needs to rest kind of thing mm-hmm. um so we're not happened. getting a blood we're not looking for a blood sample right now because he's been poked 50 times and yeah, he just so needs to chill like no one else is coming in like we legit at some points had to be like no like there would be a team come and be like no go like he just fell asleep you guys have been poking him for hours mm-hmm. yeah but i think it was also it was a balance of being like we're not just going to say no for right no, right we're, yeah. we're going to understand and we're going to have that discussion with you to say hey listen we know this is really important to you we know that you have to follow you know mm-hmm. what your job is but at this point you need to understand that you know he needs his rest and and we're gonna we don't think that that we think skipping one set of vitals, if you look at him, he's doing fine, he'll be okay kind of thing. So right. just, you know, not just saying no for the sake of saying yeah. no, but just to... to and how was that received? Um, I think it really depended on the... Mostly they were very understanding. Like, a lot of the times where we asked them not to, like, stay away, they were very understanding of it. For sure. And there was one instance in particular where uh, we it was a pretty emotional day in that Everett had had a lot of... Um, Pokes. 
what they call pokes, but blood work and IV starts. He was leaving, it was at a time where they were worried about infection. And, and he, he had was, very small veins. He was a very tough poke. So, mm-hmm. like, to yeah. try and get blood out of him was, like... It was very difficult. A huge ordeal. Sometimes two or three teams would have to come in, and each team is only allowed to poke twice. A lot of times, and they have to switch it up, and then you got to wait. And so um, that many, the amount of times that he had been poked that day was pretty stressful. And um, they came in, the nurse came in to say, oh, they want another blood sample done. It's at the end of the day. And we were just kind of fed up and said, no, it's not happening. Mm-hmm. And she kind of looked like, I don't know what to do. They're saying, no, he needs this done. So I guess she went back. And at that point, the like head cardiologist had gone home for the night. It was like 8 o'clock at night. But I guess she called. They must have called the cardiologist at home. And she said, let me talk to the parents. And so she got on the phone with Chris and said, hey, listen, I understand where you guys are coming from. We know that he's been through a lot today, but you have to understand how important this blood sample is. Mm-hmm. And we really, really need this blood sample. Okay. As in, so we understood how serious it was. Okay. And so we were like, okay, yeah, we, you know, we, we now know. Um, but that same night, he lost an IV in the middle of the night, and they couldn't get it in, and they were trying, and they had ultrasounds there, and he was screaming. It was a really, really emotional night. And we finally said, no, it's not happening. And I remember mm-hmm. the nurse, she was really young and I think a bit more inexperienced. Mm-hmm. And she just looked like she didn't know what to do. Like she was like, well, I have to get this IV in. Like, he needs an IV. He needs his antibiotics. And we said, no, he can wait till the morning. Like, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not happening. Yeah. You, you can't get it. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. You can't just keep, you know. Poking forever. Yeah, poking him forever. So that was a rough, that was probably our roughest, our night, roughest night. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, of the whole stint. The next day, uh, they, like, the next, the, the nurse we had the next morning, it's funny, because, like, they, they start to know you, right? They know yeah. you as a family. They know what you're like. They know that we were really upset, and that's not mm-hmm. really like us. We're not that, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we. You're either cooperative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they gave us, like, one of the most, like, one of the greatest nurses um, on the unit, and she made this little sign on the door that said, please do not disturb, because we'd had a really rough night. What was her name, babe? Um, <laughs> You're putting her on the spot now. On the spot. <laughs> we need to give her a shout-out. She was the sweetest. She was the yeah. sweetest. She would, like, tell us. She would, like, be like, you know what? Go for dinner. Like, just get away for a and bit. I'll watch the. I'll watch Everett. It's heartwarming that you, you remember her specifically that well, right? Because sure. at, at that point, you needed someone to just kind of... Be, be your advocate. Yes, yeah, and she definitely right? was. She yes. was the best. Yeah, she was she amazing. Was really good. Yeah. And so she, yeah, she put this sign on the door that basically said, "Do not disturb," and we all got to sleep. And and they had kind of, I guess, given the at rounds that day, they had already said to the to the cardiologist, "Listen, they've had a rough night." And so I just feel like everybody, okay. everybody was kind of told. It was like made aware what yeah, happened, yeah, and so they all had respect in a much more for sensitive yeah. way, and we're delivering the news. I think, and they were much more. <laughs> Usually it's a very much like we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this, and it was it was a different vibe. Been more compassionate, yeah. So compassion is the perfect word. And that that kind of leads into my next question, which is, you know, we often I've worked in healthcare, I'm now in in academia, so that's different. But um, oftentimes we feel ourselves as healthcare providers that we we tend to work in silos. So did you feel like at Sick Kids they were really good at communicating together as a team? That's what I'm I'm getting from you. On the unit for sure. Mm -hmm. Between different floors, like so if cardiology were to talk with, you know... um, Physio or with... Well, no, just like, I mean, like, you know, the IDTs. Like, you can see between departments it's a little bit more siloed. Right. Um, But But that's to be expected, but the silos communicated well. It's like if there was... If there was a test required, it was sent and things were ordered. And I just feel like yeah. everything happened okay. pretty yeah. flawlessly. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I feel like it was good. Um, I think where you start to see it is between hospitals. Yeah, it's difficult, sure. right? That like there's no like there's no they have mm-hmm. no access to anything, and like our family doctor didn't get any records from sick kids, and the pediatrician got certain things, and so it's once we got back to Sunday, yeah. I think that you start to see that um, mm-hmm. some of that yeah, communication. That's definitely an area for improvement. Yeah. Definitely an area for improvement. Your, kind of your responsibility for sure. too. Yeah. Yeah, we're now the gatekeepers mm-hmm. of all this information. Mm-hmm. And that's I a way to put it. And yeah. I also feel like it was. Um, I feel like in when you're in the healthcare fields, of course you know what all these acronyms mean and you know mm-hmm. who does what. And there's so many different people. Like you know, we first we were um, referred to the Lynn and C- and 
who else was involved with them? They told me that that uh, the Children's Treatment Center would be, but I didn't know who, what any of these right. people did or who would be contacting me or what their role was. So I was getting calls from this coordinator and this mm-hmm. coordinator, and then, then I'd meet with Oxygen this person. Oxygen and... and uh, yeah, so it was a lot to navigate and, and figure out, especially at a time where you're not based you're probably not at your, you know, mm-hmm. at your best. Absolutely not. <laughs> well, and, and you also have another child. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I'm just thinking... The forgotten one. Parent, yes. Having two young kids. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, for sure. Without all of this, you know? Yeah. So then, like, now, like, I feel like now, you know, yeah. it's, it's second nature now. You understand everything. But I remember at the time feeling very overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't like me. Like, I, you know, I feel like that's not usually my personality. I usually, mm-hmm. you know, I'm... I understand and I know what, what yeah. and I felt like that was a bit of when we got discharged from sick kids it was very much like okay now what who's going to be calling me right. what am I doing who's doing what oh gosh yeah and so it took some time to figure that all out but yes we did get it figured out so what would you say I guess they sent the sorry to interrupt you they they yeah. sent us off with all of the referrals mm-hmm. like when we left sick kids we were told like this person and this person this person all these places and then it just kind of never, it just kind of never happened. We had to kind of mm-hmm. self-navigate that, but we were sent off. We were yeah, sent off we with the information we did. Yeah. It would have been great. It would have been like a, a sheet. Right. We made a referral to this, this, mm-hmm. this. This is what this person does. This is how long you right. expect to call. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They're yeah. going to call you, and these are the services that these services they're going to discuss. You know what I mean? Like some sort of guide sheet. Right. Yeah, like you said, you're getting phone calls. Okay, what's this for? Who yeah, are you? Or your like, agency? I think I had a referral. I think she mentioned we'd be having okay. a referral. You're flipping through the discharge summaries mm-hmm. to see, okay, what does this say? So, yeah. But it wow. worked out. It all worked out. <laughs> I, I wanted, I, I printed out, uh, it's kind of like a little, I don't know if you'd call it a, a poem or a narrative, because this had really hit home for me when I was a new clinician, fresh out of grad school as a speech language pathologist, working at the Children's Treatment Center with families that are that have gone through maybe not as, as severe of a of a situation as you guys, but still, you know, right. they're, 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 it's not exactly. how they expected. And I, yeah. I don't know if you guys have heard this before, but I thought um, it might be interesting for the listeners as well. So it's, I'll, I'll just go ahead and read it. It'll take me like a minute or two. Okay. So it's called Welcome to Holland. Does that ring a bell? Have no. you guys know? So it was written in 1987 by um, Emily Pearl Kingsley. And it goes like this. So I'm often asked to describe the experience of raising a child with a disability to try to help people who have not shared that unique experience to understand it, to imagine how it would feel. It's like this. When you're going to have a baby, it's like planning a fabulous vacation trip to Italy. You buy a bunch of guidebooks and make your wonderful plans, the Colosseum, the Michelangelo David, the gondolas in Venice. You may learn some handy phrases in Italian. It's all very exciting. After months of eager anticipation, the day finally arrives. You pack your bags and off you go. Several hours later, the plane lands. The flight attendant comes and says, Welcome to Holland. Holland, you say? What do you mean, Holland? I signed up for Italy. I'm supposed to be in Italy. All my life, I've dreamed of going to Italy. But there's been a change in the flight plan. They've landed in Holland, and there you must stay. The important thing is that they haven't taken you to a horrible, disgusting, filthy place full of pestilence, famine, and disease. It's just a different place. So you must go out and buy new guidebooks, and you must learn a whole new language, and you will meet a whole new group of people you would never have met. It's just a different place. It's slower paced than Italy, less flashy than Italy, but after you've been there for a while and you catch your breath, you look around, and you begin to notice that Holland has windmills, and Holland has tulips, Holland has Rembrandts, but everyone you know is busy coming and growing from Italy, and they're all bragging about what a wonderful time they had there. And for the rest of your life, you will say, yes, that's where I was supposed to go. That's what I had planned. And the pain of that will never, ever, ever, ever go away, because the loss of that dream is a very, very significant loss. But if you spend your life mourning the fact that you didn't get to Italy, you may never be free to enjoy the very special, the very lovely things about Holland. Isn't that nice? So, That's yeah, awesome. I have heard that before. Yeah. That is so yeah. awesome. Yeah. Whenever it was in the hospital, there was a period of time where I was really struggling with this mm-hmm. exact, um, you know, these some of those exact feelings mm-hmm. and couldn't really put my finger on what I was feeling. So I remember right. just kind of like Googling, mm-hmm. you know, having a child with, 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 with health condition mm-hmm. and you know 
And I came across that, and there was kind of an explanation around you go through a bit of a grieving period Mm -hmm. after your your child's born, and I thought, yeah, that's exactly how it's described. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. just kind of grieving the fact that he's not going to be what I had thought he was going to be, and it's not, it's just that he may not play football, and he may not play hockey, and you know, Mm -hmm. but you know what, he he is still going to have... Uh, a good life and he's yeah. still going to get to experience great things and those things really aren't that important <laughs> yeah. and yeah. and you know you just reframe how you how you look at him and, and what his life's going to be like and you're just so much more I, I don't know things just don't matter the way that they were that they did before yeah uh, but it takes time to get there it's like oh he's got a snaggle tooth who gives a shit yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 right like yeah, which which solved itself by the way yeah. but like at the time it was like who cares <laughs> yeah. right with zoe if she had a snaggle tooth it would have been yeah. like devastating right. but like now, devastating yeah. is relative yeah. to For sure. Absolutely. to what the situation so, yeah, I think is that that mm-hmm. story definitely definitely that hit me hard yeah that hit me hard because I, I remember and you, you'll, you'll um, i find as a health professional we never truly understand what yeah. a family goes through we can try to appreciate it but yes. never you don't understand the emotions that are involved yes and i think that we often tend to forget like you said you know we have to go in do our thing go out go see the next patient and i mean we mean well and we have a lot mm-hmm. to do but i think always coming back to okay they're going through you know a lot for more sure. than just for sure take right. the vitals at that time you know yes. there's there's a whole set of of emotions and, and yeah. other thought processes so um i i just really love that that little poem for sure okay so we're already at like 45 minutes so just a, a few more things um you've shared so much and i'm i'm very grateful for your willingness to share this and i think it, it hopefully it'll help other families that are going through uh similar situations um now like you said, you, you've, you've come to appreciate this, you know, new, new place here in Holland. Um, what other positive outcomes have come from this experience? Um, well, just Everett in general. Absolutely. Like, we just love yeah. him and all that he is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that it made us both really reevaluate um, our lives. So Chris has actually taken a completely new career path. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it just really made us realize what's important to us. Mm-hmm. And um, so yeah, so And just how generally that. important it is just to be, just to be pursuing things that that really make you happy and mm-hmm. that really matter. Like that, this whole thing with Everett just shook me to the core and mm-hmm. just made me realize that life is just so short. Mm-hmm. And um, it's gonna sound so cheesy and cliche, but I I honestly use Everett as an infinite source of of just inner strength and and power and inspiration. Any time I hit a wall doing anything, and and it's more so in the physical realm mm-hmm. in my races and whatnot. That when I feel like it's just, it's time to, like, the body needs to just shut down, I tap the bravery beads on my chest, and I'm just reminded of how much harder Everett worked than this, and how much more pain he experienced, and and, and he made it out without any complaints, so mm-hmm. it, it it's almost like a super, it's almost like a superpower, and a very daily reminder that there's really no excuse for mm-hmm. for anything less than everything you have in your whole heart and soul. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. And you both are sitting here smiling. I know people listening can't hear, but it seems like it's really opened your eyes to a, a new way of looking at life and appreciating. Sure. And I mean, he's yeah. doing well right now, so I feel like yeah. we're at a, at a space where we can be like this and we're just, mm-hmm. you know, enjoying him and yeah. enjoying all the progress he's made and just mm-hmm. letting him be a, like a normal kid. Yeah. I feel like now we're at this kind of dilemma of like his whole life, his identity has been, you mm-hmm. know, the cardiac baby, the miracle right. baby. So we're at this kind of new juncture where it's like, oh, we just want him to be a normal boy uh, now, you know, as much yeah. as he can. Like, he's always going to have, you know, yeah. um, his health, his 
you know, healthcare side of things, but we want him just to be known as Everett and, yeah. and, and not to identity. And not to have his heart disease or the situation mm-hmm. he's been through kind of, we, we want to, uh, and that's not saying that we're not going to use this as a, it's almost like I'm going to use it as a motivational, not it specifically, but this as a motivational tool forever because there's going to be times where he's going to say, oh, dad, this sucks. I didn't make the hockey team. Right. You know, whatever it, you got this, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. You're good. You're going to make it. Yeah. Dad, my girlfriend dumped me. I'm crushed. This sucks. Right. I know, Everett. It's the worst. I've been through it. But you got this, buddy. Yeah. yeah. Right? But it's not. But we don't want it to define him. We don't want him to be the mm-hmm. the cardiac baby, right? We don't want him well, to like be he, the... Yeah, of course he's always going to understand, you know, what he's been through. And this is something he has to live with the rest of his life. And mm-hmm. it's, he's going to continue to be in the health system for the rest of <laughs> forever and, and echoes and know, all this stuff and yeah he might not be doing it as well you know in, when he's in 30 five, 10 years and 15 years we're not sure at this point but um we just you know we want him to to try and live um the best life he can mm-hmm. and, and yeah what would be a take-home message for for listeners who might be living something similar oh man <laughs> take-home message, eh? Lean into your partner. Yeah, I mean, I think... And simultaneously be an unwavering pillar for your partner to lean on. I think you have to find... uh, I think each individual person has to have different coping, ways of coping, right? So Chris's way of coping when we were in the hospital was through exercise. Mm -hmm. So he found, you know... Pursuit. Yeah, a lot of pleasure in, in going skateboarding and running... I um, kind of found some support groups online, like Facebook groups for other moms who are in the same unit, so on that same with other cardiac babies at sick kids, and I just found that super helpful just to Mm -hmm. see other parents, and sometimes I just click on pictures and see, oh, look Mm -hmm. how normal the life they're living, or, you know, it just made me feel better um, about it, so I think that the take-home message is it's going to be really tough, Mm -hmm. and there's going to be times where it's really, really tough, but Mm -hmm. it becomes... It, it becomes your new normal right. and you know we we get through it and um and yeah I mean I think you'll just come out of it just a, a stronger person and it'll definitely change you but it's not necessary it's usually for the better mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> so yeah and so you kind of touched on um I usually end with kind of what are your some of your favorite resources or what helped you so you're saying that a lot of those those groups on Facebook were very helpful what else was yeah we met some other families mm-hmm. like at the Ronald McDonald house yeah. and just kind of sharing. shout out shout out John and Kayla yeah, and son, Hunter who the same thing as Everett Epstein, condition, everything. everything he was yeah. born six how weeks before six Everett. weeks before Everett okay. so yeah so, so we connected a little bit yeah. John yeah, and I so hung out a couple a lot of the same things as us and their young family as well um, so just connecting with other family is really important mm-hmm. and, uh, and yeah, finding that outlet, like in Chris's case, <laughs> which sparked an entire, like, off, yeah, yeah, like sparked an entire, an entire life change. Like this, this thing with Everett was, yeah, it was the, it was like the genesis of, of a complete, complete and utter shift of gears in every single way. For the better. Mm-hmm. So that's just a testament to the fact that a, a terrible situation, if handled properly, can lead to positive outcomes, mm-hmm. right? We were both thrown into the most horrifying situation that two people or a parent, two parents could ever imagine, but... I feel like Leslie and I communicated in ways that we had never communicated in before. I We both took things away from it and started to be able to appreciate the world around us in different ways and just shift outlook on life. And I came out on the other side as just a generally more optimistic, don't sweat the small stuff. Like, let's really, like, I feel like my... Like, everything just went up mm-hmm. because of the fact that 
life is too short and you got to make every single second and be the best person that you possibly can at every single second because you never know when that's going to be taken away. But there are going to be times where you're not feeling like the best person. <laughs> Chris is very, very positive and I try to be like that, but I'm also very much a realist and as a mom, I want other moms to know that mm-hmm. you're not always going to feel like that and mm-hmm. it's going to be hard sometimes to, to keep that positive mm-hmm. face on and not go into the, the bathroom and cry or not, you know, do those types of things. Yeah. So that's very realistic as well. It's not always going to be, um, right. Yeah. There's yeah. going to be some tough Obvi. times, but definitely, definitely lean on the people around you to get through that for sure. Well, thank you so much for, like I said, sharing your story. Um, I, I think that it needs to be shared. Um, people need to know what it means to go through all of this, especially people who are working with with kids who have health conditions and um, and just other families in general who may um, take a lot for granted. So thanks so much. Um, do you have anything else you wanted to add before we turn the mic w- off? <laughs> I want I want I just want to say one more thing. And it we've we've kind of danced around it, and I just wouldn't feel satisfied with myself if if this interview ended without me articulating this, but. Leslie mentioned earlier how her and I are different and we have different coping mechanisms and we have different kind of emotional tendencies and kind of emotional needs, right? Leslie, I'm very much an emotional roller coaster, right? We've known each other for a very short amount of time, but you've probably, like you see, I, I'm, I get really high, right? But when times are bad... I crash because I ride the highs really high, but my lows, mm-hmm. because I've been, I'm so emotionally invested in the high, when that gets, when the rug gets ripped out from underneath me, I fall through the floor. Okay. Yes. So the viewer, the listeners can't hear me, but it's yeah, very much the behemoth yeah. roller coaster, right? <laughs> Leslie is very much more steadfast emotionally where she doesn't, she doesn't experience the highs, but her lows are also very tempered. So she's very much more balanced across the middle. So that balance Mm -hmm. is, is what is the key because when I'm riding high and Leslie's here, I can tug her up with me. But when I'm crashing through the floor, Leslie is just below zero and she's able, Mm -hmm. she's able to bring me up. So so, uh, yeah, so it's very much, very much, um, a mutually beneficial, but also very kind of like co-reliant. I don't know if that's a word, yeah, that but system, yeah. um, and babe, I gotta say that like, I, I wouldn't have been able to make it do this <laughs> without you. Thank you. You were like Thank the, you. you were like the, the core of, of this orbit. Yeah holding everything together um one more thing that i kind of wanted and this is going back to like the healthcare side of things one thing um that i did notice about i've, I've seen it kind of dealing with different doctors and different nurses is that they'll have different levels of comfort and kind of deviating from you know, those really rigid, sometimes really rigid procedures mm-hmm. and plans based sometimes on, I think, personality and sometimes based on experience. Right. So you're getting some really experienced healthcare providers and professionals um, that just kind of know when to do those things that the family needs. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And and one thing I did notice is there's certain people that really trusted us as parents mm-hmm. and really trusted our instincts when it came to Everett. Right. And yeah, there was good a couple point. times where they kind of spoke up on our behalf to say, hey, mom's noticed this. I really think we should look into this. Right. You know, and kind of spoke up for us in that yeah. in that sense. And I find our pediatricians really good for that as well. Like, yeah. Well, you know your child best, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So she'll just, you know, she'll kind of ask me stuff and, and I'll say, well, I think it's this. And she'll like, okay, yeah, I think you're right. Like, that's a good, that's a, you know what I mean? Like really just make us feel valued and make our, our opinions feel valued and, and our input. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I really appreciate. And to healthcare professionals out there, I think that's really important mm-hmm. is to try and keep the family in the loop and to feel mm-hmm. as involved as they can because they really do understand and they've been through this and mm-hmm. maybe they don't articulate it in the same yeah. terms that you're used to articulating it, mm-hmm. but they, they get it and and they want to feel involved yeah. and they want to feel a part of it. And family members read the symptoms differently. 
right? Sure. Like, you know that look on your child's face right. means X, Y, Z, right? Exactly. You know, you, just yes. by looking at them. For sure. So you could tell there was, there was some, definitely some people who understood that and trusted mm-hmm. that and, and let that guide kind of, you know, their, mm-hmm. um, their next steps and their recommendations. So that was, that was nice to see. Good. Yeah. Well, again, thanks so much. I think we've uh, made it clear that communication is super important when it comes to uh, dealing with families who are uh, dealing with such severe, like you said, Chris, health. Um, can, uh, severe health conditions so you know, talk to each other, talk to the family members and between the two of you communication was really important with your family and everything else so For sure. thanks so much yeah thank you alright bye see ya <laughs> okay I just wanted to add that as you heard Everett is now doing well um, you know, they, they've overcome so many obstacles. And after I, I stopped recording the episode, they were actually talking about how Everett is now receiving speech and language therapy, occupational therapy, and physiotherapy through the daycare. And so now they are still having to communicate with various healthcare professionals, with daycare providers. And so I think this will be a lifelong journey for them. Um, But again, just to maybe enlighten some of the people that work with children who have medical conditions or special needs to always remember that there's a story behind every child. And even though they may be doing well today, there is that experience that will always be in their memory and will always be a part of them. So thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode.